I couldn't believe the words came out of my mouth. It was the last night of a college-age mission trip to Puerto Rico, and we had spent the week serving at Puerto Rico Christian School and Toa Baja Christian Church, and one of the young adults in our group named Russell had been a thorn in my side all week long. It all started when we landed in Puerto Rico, and he demanded that we stop and get him some food because he was hungry. And then while we were supposed to be teaching and working and spending time with the students, Russell was back at the house taking a nap. He brought some things on the trip that we told him not to bring. And I think what made it the most frustrating is he was the oldest guy on the trip, and so I had expected him to be more mature. And it all came to a head on the last evening that we were eating dinner together. My wife and another woman had made dinner, spaghetti, breadsticks, and salad. And I gathered everybody together to pray before we ate, and Russell asked what we were having. And somebody told him, he said, oh, no, I'm not eating that. You're going to have to take me to get something else. And at that point, I had had enough. Without skipping a beat, I said, Russell, you are the most difficult person I have ever met. And the room grew quiet. Everybody looked at me with eyes wide open. Afterwards, one of the students said, Joel, you're so calm and composed. I've never seen you get loud before. I, wasn't, I never expected that. It was so shocking. Now, without ever touching him, without harming him physically, I had feelings of contempt that exploded in an outburst of anger. And Jesus gets to the bottom of this in Matthew 5, verse 21. He begins what some have called the six antitheses. Six different times in Matthew 5, 21 through 48, Jesus shares a common interpretation of the law, and then he follows it by giving us the true meaning of the law. We're going to begin reading it together in Matthew 5, verse 21. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? You have heard it said that it, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So Jesus starts the first antithesis by addressing the sixth commandment, which we find in Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Murder is the premeditated killing of another person. And under Old Testament law, anybody who committed murder was to receive the death penalty. This was the common expected interpretation of the law. There were two problems with the way the Pharisees and the scribes handled murder. One is they limited murder to the external act. And two, 
they limited the punishment to the earthly court. Jesus insists that murder goes deeper than that, and the punishment goes deeper as well. It's not just the act of murder that matters to God, it's the attitude behind the act. Remember, God looks at the heart. And so Jesus flips this interpretation upside down by revealing the true meaning of the law. He says in verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus takes this command, you shall not murder, and he connects it to the inner attitude of anger. Now, this was certainly the case with Cain and Abel in the Old Testament, right? But Jesus goes even further here. He says anger itself is enough to make a person subject to judgment. In other words, it's not just that anger leads to the sin of murder. Rather, anger is the sin of murder. Jesus emphasizes that anger is not just an external action, but it originates with the heart. And in doing this, what Jesus does is he raises the standard of righteousness. He shows that that he's concerned not only with our actions, but he's ultimately concerned with our hearts. In other words, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Anger is the root, murder is the fruit. Jesus says in Luke 6.45, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So what's in your heart will eventually make its way out. A heart that's full of greed will produce a lifestyle of having to accumulate more and more and more. A heart that's full of pride will produce self-serving decisions. A heart that's full of anger will produce contempt towards other people and, and harmful and hurtful words. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. We could also say that the fingers type what the heart is full of. The brain thinks what the heart is full of. The eyes look at what the heart is full of. The feet follow what the heart is full of. We look at our world today and we grieve and lament the state of our world and everything that's wrong with it, and so often we turn to political answers. We want to restrict this or or ban this or or outlaw this or or make this illegal. And and don't get me wrong, legislation can help, and it's good to, to pursue those avenues when we can, but you know as well as I do that the real problem lies with the human heart. And no amount of legislation can change a person's heart. Because what's in the heart will eventually make its way out, until there is a heart change, the problems will continue. So what do we do? First, inspect your intentions. We have to inspect our intentions. The the driving question that Jesus gets at is what lies behind the act. Murder is the most extreme action, but what's its cause? Jesus says it's anger, and then he gives a couple of examples to show how anger is expressed. We read in verse 22. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Raka was an Aramaic word. It was an expression of abuse. It means empty. 
It'd be like saying, you blockhead, you nimwit, you numbskull, you brainless idiot. In Jewish culture, name-calling was highly insulting because a person's identity was stripped away, and it was replaced with something offensive. And so even today, when you call someone an idiot or, or you say that they're stupid, even if you say it under your breath, you're getting at what Jesus was talking about here. Jesus says anyone who calls a brother or sister Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, which was the, the Jewish Supreme Court. Now, if raka has to do with someone's mind, calling a person you fool has to do with their heart. It attacks their identity. It's putting a judgment on their heart and on their motivations. You're basically saying that a person is worthless, that they're not good for anything. And what does Jesus say? That person will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, you may hear that and be thinking, come on now, like, Anger, it's not the same thing as murder. Like, these are small sins here. Getting angry at someone, calling them names. And while it is true that some sins have greater earthly consequences, what Jesus wants us to understand is that all sin, no matter how small, violates God's holy and perfect standard and condemns us. In your anger, you are passing judgment on another person. It, it's an assassination of a person's character. We read in 1 John 3.15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. When you insult someone, when you call them worthless, when you call them an idiot, you are murdering them with your words. You're attacking their value. You're attacking their self-worth. And those piercing words can stay with them for a really long time, maybe even their entire life. And God says that life is sacred. All human life has value and intrinsic worth because we are made in the image of God. And therefore, we shouldn't harm or hurt anyone. We shouldn't desire to harm anyone. In stunning fashion, Jesus demonstrates that those who've committed murder aren't just the people sitting in jail on death row, but it's people who gather in churches every Sunday. It's me and it's you. Now, notice that Jesus speaks of murder and anger in relational terms. It's in the context of your attitudes and your actions towards fellow people. And so since it is directed at other people, it's no surprise that the antidote is reconciling with your brother or sister or reconciling with your adversary. So number one, inspect your intentions. How's your heart? Second, rush to reconcile. Rush to reconcile. In verses 23 through 26, Jesus stresses the urgency in reconciling with someone you've wronged, someone that, that you have offended in some way. This is what he says. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with them, and then come and offer your gift. Now, Jesus is saying, it is the person who has wronged someone else. It is the offending party who ought to go and initiate reconciliation. And I just want to make sure that we comprehend 
the seriousness, the the radical extreme nature of Jesus' statement here. In Jesus' day, people would travel hundreds of miles on foot to come and offer sacrifices in the temple. That they would come and make three annual pilgrimages on the Feast of Booths and Passover Festival and Pentecost. And it would take days for some people, depending on where they travel from, maybe even weeks to come and offer these sacrifices. And what Jesus is saying literally is if when you're at the altar and you recognize that you have wronged someone else, you drop it right there and you leave. You you can come back later, but right now you need to go and make things right. Now Jesus isn't saying that worship is unimportant. Jesus is not saying that that bringing your gifts and bringing your offerings don't matter. It does. Because Jesus says, then come and offer your gift. He wants you to offer your gift. But listen, reconciliation matters more. And if Jesus hasn't made his point strong enough, he gives another illustration in verse 25. This is a situation where someone is taken to court for failing to repay a large debt. And Jesus says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I will tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Do you hear the urgency once more? Settle matters quickly. Leave it at the altar. What's Jesus saying? A restored relationship reflects the law's true meaning more than religious duty. And maybe you're thinking, is is it really that that serious? Does it really matter? Absolutely. Why? Because you don't know how much time you have. You don't know when it will be too late. A petty squabble in light of eternity isn't worth it. In the early 1980s, uh, Patty Davis was passionately opposed to the buildup of nuclear weapons. She constantly spoke at rallies criticizing the nuclear arms policies of the Reagan administration. The main difference between Patty and all the other demonstrators was that Ronald Reagan was her father. Her mother was appalled at Patty's actions because she felt like they were a personal attack on her father. But as long as she was respectful and civil, her father didn't mind Patty publicly expressing her views. A few years ago, Patty wrote about her father in a national magazine, and she admits that she chose the more militant, in-your-face approach. She frequently told the media that it wasn't personal, but today she realizes that her actions spoke louder than her words. While Patty was demonstrating for world peace, she now admits that she was also a child railing against a parent, nothing more. She says, I was at war with my father. One of her biggest regrets was turning her father down every time that he wanted to sit down and talk about her life. She would always tell him, I already know your side. And she admits that her failure to talk to him wounded her father. She also expressed regret for participating in an anti-nuclear rally in 1982 at the Rose Bowl with 100,000 people in attendance. Just before she came to the podium to speak, the entire audience was shouting, get a new president. 
And every fiber of her being told her to walk away, but she gave the speech anyway. Looking back, she admits that no one remembered her speech. Only that when she came on stage, 100,000 people were calling for her father to resign. Later in his life, after her father had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, she said, I I would look into my father's eyes and try to reach past the murkiness of Alzheimer with my words, my apology, hoping that in his heart he heard me and understood. Patty Davis concludes her article. She says, I wish that now all those years ago I would have led with kindness, not ideological stridency. We are, after all, remembered in the end for how we treat others. Sometimes the political has to be tempered by the personal. You don't want that to be you. You don't want to look back and realize it's too late. You don't want to look back and wish you would have reconciled. Don't live with that regret. What makes reconciliation so beautiful is that it cools down the temperature of a room. Anger turns up the heat, and if anger is left unchecked, it will burn the house down. The act of murder doesn't happen in a moment. It starts with anger in the heart. You say something about somebody else under your breath. You look at them with contempt. You lash out at them. You wish ill will towards them. It consumes, it consumes, and it consumes until it's expressed in the most vile action imaginable. And the reason we have a hard time connecting the dots here is because you think, I would never commit murder. But Jesus has just shown us that you have the capacity for contempt. Jesus has just shown us that that you have the ability to be angry, which is the sin of murder. Do you know how many people are are sitting in jail right now? People who, who are sitting on death row who never would have thought they would have committed that crime. And you see it, right, when when news stations report on it, and and they go to neighbors, and they go to family, and what do they say? Oh, they were just quiet. You know, they were nice neighbors. You know, you would never expected it. Don't allow yourself to get to a place that you never dreamed of. Before you do something unimaginable, make peace. In fact, this week, this week, Pursue reconciliation with someone you've wronged. This week, pursue reconciliation with someone you've wronged. Maybe it's an estranged friendship. You you have a person that you were just close friends with. You did everything together. You talked about everything. You shared everything. but, But something happened that drove a wedge in that friendship. It was something you did. It was something you said. And things haven't been the same since. And maybe it's been years since you've talked. Maybe you've got a business partner or a coworker, and you worked side by side for years and years, and you made a great team, and, but, but something happened that that financial deal went down, and it just it split the relationship. It's fractured, and it's never been the same. Maybe it's a family member. You've got a sibling, a brother or a sister, a parent a son or a daughter, a grandparent or or a grandson. And and something happened. There there was drama in the family, and and you said something, and you regret it, but you haven't taken that step to make reconciliation. 
maybe for some of you, it's a spouse. And right now, you're separated. Or you're in a position right now where if things continue to head down the path they're on right now, you're going to be separated. And you think it's at the point of no return. Pursue reconciliation. Set your ego aside. Swallow your pride. Have the conversation. Make the call. Send the text. Write the letter. Set up the lunch appointment. Take the first step. Don't wait. The kingdom of God, the already but not yet kingdom that we belong to is the kingdom of peace. And our lives ought to be marked by peace now. And we should always be people who pursue peace. Paul writes in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And this goes back to what we studied in the Beatitudes when Jesus tells us, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Remember, the reason you and I are peacemakers is because we serve a God who made the ultimate peace between God and man. Paul says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our sin separated us from a holy God, and we were enemies with God, and Christ made a way so that we might have peace with our Heavenly Father. And when you think about reconciliation, you're thinking, but Joel, you don't know what happened. What if they won't forgive me? What if they refuse to reconcile? And it's true, we can't force anyone to forgive us. And sometimes it takes time for a person to trust us after we've hurt them. But regardless, we are obligated to pursue reconciliation, understanding that things may not happen according to our timetable. So drop the excuses. Don't put it off. Don't wait another day. Pursue reconciliation. And if you're still convinced that that it's not needed, what you need to know is that you're not just at odds with someone else, you're at odds with God himself. A fractured relationship with another human is an indication of a fractured relationship with God. If you don't believe me, read the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. We love God by loving others. And Jesus says it is more important to be reconciled with another person than it is to bring your offering. And you think you can get by, you think you're fine, you think it's really not affecting you, but your fractured relationship is weighing you down and it is impacting your spiritual life more than you realize. According to Erasmus University, carrying a grudge can weigh you down, literally. Uh, The researchers asked study participants about a time when they had experienced a conflict. And some were instructed to write down a time where they didn't forgive an offender. And others were told to think about a time they did forgive the person. And then a third group was asked to write about a comparatively dull social situation. And then all the groups, all the participants were given a small physical challenge to jump five times as high as they could without bending their knees. So these human guinea pigs do the experiment. They jump as high as they can five times without bending their knees. And those who had been thinking about a time when they had forgiven, they jumped the highest, about 11.8 inches on average. Those who had written about their grudges, on the other hand, jumped 8.5 inches. In another similar experiment, 
people who had been set up to think about a time that they held a grudge estimated that a hill was steeper than it actually was. They, they guessed that it was steeper than people who were thinking about a time where they forgave someone. And so the results of, of this study, they, they suggest that the weight of carrying a grudge, it may be more than just a metaphor. The lead researcher for this study wrote, a state of unforgiveness is like carrying a heavy burden, a burden that victims bring with them when they navigate the physical world. Forgiveness can lighten this burden. Here's what it means for you and me. When you reconcile your relationships, you can come to worship with a clear conscience. You can come to worship full, free of distractions, offering yourself fully to God. And I wonder if a lot of the things that people complain about in church are, are merely distractions from a burdened heart. When people complain, you know, I wish the music was different, I wish the preaching was better, I wish, uh, I wish the, the, the coffee tastes better, or it's too cold, or it's too dark, or it's too loud, you know, it's the Goldilocks of, of complaints. And I feel that, that when, when we come and our heart is burdened, we're weighed down by sin, or we're weighed down by fractured relationships, that what happens is we get distracted by lesser things instead of focusing on the object of our worship, Jesus Christ. And I wonder what it would look like if, if those same things would be said if we had a heart that was free of distractions. We, we had a heart that, that was fully reconciled and we just focused on Jesus. How's your heart? When I was in Puerto Rico, after I expressed this outburst of anger at Russell in front of everyone, I knew that I needed to make things right. I had essentially called him Raka, you fool. I don't know if expressing anger made me think that I would feel better, but I can tell you it didn't. Band-Aids can't heal heart problems. And so I went up to Russell, and I pulled him aside, and I apologized to him for my anger and for the embarrassment of calling him out in front of the group. I let him know what led to my frustration, but I told him it was no excuse for my actions. I explained to him how I was committed to act going forward and what I expected from him as well. And Russell appreciated and he was comforted by my apology, but looking back, I realized that I was the one who benefited from it the most. It released me from my own prison. And, and you know what? <laughs> there were things that Russell did that still caused me to scratch my head. There were things that, that still frustrated me about him, but the difference was I no longer had contempt for him. I no longer wished ill will towards him. I, I truly did long for his flourishing. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And the true intent of the law is to nurture relationships. And so if you want to live out the true meaning of the law, then drop everything and reconcile with the person you're at odds with. This matters so much more to God than religious activity. Religious activity that attempts to appease our relationship with God is meaningless if it's not based on the purity of our human relationships. We're not, we're not called to come to worship with the knowledge that we have treated someone wrongly. Make it right. And as we close today, I think on this July 4th weekend, this story is appropriate. They were two devoted friends, brilliant minds, 
John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. They fell out with each other over politics, personal slights, and both feeling betrayed by the other. The feud not only embittered them, causing them to abandon all correspondence and relationship of any kind for many years, but it also troubled their closest companions who could not imagine these giants of the revolution becoming estranged for the rest of their lives. In 1809, a mutual signer of the Declaration of Independence, Dr. Benjamin Rush, had a dream about the two former presidents. He wrote it down and he sent it to both of the men. In the dream, he saw these alienated statesmen renew their friendship and to begin corresponding with each other. In the dream, John Adams addressed a short letter to Thomas Jefferson, and Jefferson responded. These two brief letters were followed by a correspondence of several years in which they mutually reviewed the scenes of business in which they had been engaged and candidly acknowledged to each other all the errors of opinion and conduct into which they had fallen during the time they filled the same station in the service of their country. Both Jefferson and Adams politely acknowledged their friend's account of the dream and thought no more about it. Three years later, at Benjamin Rush's urging, Thomas Jefferson sent a very tentative letter to John Adams, who resp responded with a guarded reply. One letter followed another until John Adams wrote to Jefferson on July 15, 1813. He said, never mind it, my dear sir, if I write four letters to your one. Your one is worth more than my four. You and I ought not to die before we have explained ourselves to each other. These two bitter enemies, prodded by a friend's dream, were, bought, were brought back together for the last several years of their lives until they died. Both on the same day, only three hours apart, on July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. It's such a cool story for so many reasons. And I am grateful that these two founding fathers reconciled. But, but can I tell you that it grieves me? It grieves me at the years that were lost. It, it grieves me to think of, of, of how the, the friendship was so sour for years because of a bitter, angry heart. What joys, what memories did they miss out on because anger took control? The heart of the matter is the matter of the human heart. So how's your heart this morning? Inspect your intentions and rush to reconcile so that you can worship fully. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have made peace, that you are the ultimate peacemaker. You sent your son Jesus to live a perfect life to fulfill all the demands of the law accomplishing what we could not deserve. And he paid the ultimate price on a cross. And because of that, now sinful humanity, that we can now be in a right relationship with you. And we have peace. And the kingdom that we now belong to is a kingdom of peace. We lay down our arms. No more war, no more strife. It's all ceased. 
And God, I pray that our lives here on earth would begin to reflect that already but not yet kingdom that we belong to. God, I pray that as, that as people of peace who serve the Prince of Peace, that we would pursue reconciliation and, and the fractured relationships in our lives. And God, I pray that as we examine our hearts, we would ask you to purify us, that you'd rid us of the anger within. And when we believe and trust and follow you, that sin that condemns us, condemns us no longer. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.